Welcome to The Other Side of Darkness, an episodic Seinfeld parody story that follows Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer on a dark and mysterious journey inspired by the work of David Lynch. The Other Side of Darkness is produced by Signpeaks. I'm Jesse, also known as Signpeaks, your host and narrator. You're listening to phase one of this podcast, in which I'll be speaking with cast and crew members from Seinfeld, sharing their stories and memories from the show. Phase two, the series itself, begins this fall. The Other Side of Darkness is brought to you in part by Daily Dale Cooper, your daily source for Twin Peaks fan content, photos, and artwork. On Instagram, at Daily Dale Cooper. This week, I'm speaking with Melanie Smith, who appeared in three episodes of Seinfeld as Rachel Goldstein, as well as the season one finale of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Melanie is also known to TV fans for her extended runs on As the World Turns, Melrose Place, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Melanie and I talked about practicing yoga with Jerry between scenes, improvising with Larry David, the value of meditation, and why she decided to leave Hollywood to start a new chapter of her life across the country. Now, here's Melanie Smith. Melanie, it is a treat to have you with us today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Jess. Absolutely. Thanks for uh, joining us on the podcast. Um, I've got a lot that I want to talk to you about, and I would like to start, if it's okay, with the very beginning and kind of tell folks how you got into uh, television in the first place. And I'm asking this because I listened to a, another podcast you were on recently. Uh, this podcast is making me thirsty. And it was kind of an offhand remark, but it sounded like you said something to the effect of, it was never my plan to become an actor. Never. And I'm always interested in hearing the stories of how these careers kind of come when they're not planned from the, from the beginning. So what was your path into television? <laughs> uh, it was an accident, actually. My best childhood girlfriend, like best, best childhood girlfriend, was working in New York for a talent agency. And she had forgotten to send three girls on a talent search for Dick Clark. And she called me last minute and said, you have to go. And I was like, I'm not dancing. I was a dancer for most of my life. I said, I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. And she said, just read from a book. I don't care. So I grabbed a book off the bookshelf and I went to, what is Dick Clark, ABC or NBC? I believe it was ABC. It was ABC. So I went to ABC and there were thousands and thousands of girls there. And I read from the book. And Mary Jo Slater and Mary Lynn Henry were two of the judges. And they brought me over and they said, we want you to call this acting coach. We want you to call this photographer. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to kill my girlfriend. I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> and I went home and I said, I'm not going back. She said, if you don't go back, I'm really going to get fired. And um, I went back again and then I got called back again and I made it to the top 50. I think 25 of the girls ended up on the TV show. And there was a prize, you know, like, I don't know, a bunch of money. And uh, but during the process, my photo ended up on the New York Post. I think it was the cover page. And it said, Melanie Smith, she's got the right stuff. And the next thing I knew, there were sort of casting directors calling me. And I started working with Alice Spivak. And she made me send out photos. And I sent out something like 16 or 20 photos. And all the agents called me in. And I went and I met with them. And I, I had to read monologues. I remember that. And um, one of the monologues at the end, she exits the room and I would just exit the room and I'd get in a cab and go home, which I guess was not typical of somebody auditioning for agents. Anyway, they all wanted to sign me. I signed. And uh, when I finally met with them, 
the agent said to me, the ones that I decided on said to me, look, this is a long, painful process. You're going to have to work for free. You're going to have to audition. I said, look, I'm not working for free. <laughs> you got three months to get me a job. Otherwise I'll do something else with my life. You know, I was trained in psychology and public relations. And, um, Within three months, I had two feature films in As the World Turns, and that's really how it started. Good for you. Yeah, and I was terrible, by the way. I was terrible. <laughs> I'm terrible. I saw. I, I have my first episode somewhere, and I of As the World Turns, and I was just like, I wasn't even acting. I was talking, <laughs> and so I enrolled myself, and I luckily got into Neighborhood Playhouse House and started working with the brilliant teachers there, and it really changed. The trajectory of what happened to me because then i actually ended up having a presence in the acting world and and had a lot of success so yeah but it started from no i had no idea about the field whatsoever oh that's incredible so then that means as the world turns was if not your first one of your first credits is that right totally my first credit totally your first credit wow and you were on uh that series for about five years yeah about four and a half Four and a half, yeah. And uh, as you told me recently, uh, your co-star, my followers uh, on uh, our page, will be familiar by association. Your co-star was Lindsay Frost, uh, who yeah. is the sister <laughs> of, yes, of uh, Mark Frost, a uh, screenwriter and co-creator of Twin Peaks, and daughter of Warren Frost, who appeared uh, not only starring on Twin Peaks but also had a, a recurring guest role on Seinfeld. Not in the same seasons that you were on. Yeah, yeah I, I know who. He, yeah, I know who he was. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, I would love to hear a little bit about uh, working with Lindsay. And I'm also curious if you ever met her family. You know, that's a really good question. Probably. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, it's a long time ago. Sure. <laughs> it's a long time ago when I had COVID. So my memory's not quite as crisp. But um, I know that I've, I believe I've met her father for sure. I think, mm -hmm. you know, we have to look at IMDb, but he may even have been on World Turns briefly. Um, and working with Lindsay was terrific, really smart girl. I think she's a fine artist now. I think she paints, but she was generous and lovely and smart and tall mm -hmm. and beautiful, you know, and I, I'll never forget go, going to see her on Broadway and in Butterfly, you know, it was a big deal when she got that part. Um, but yeah, we had a great cast on World Turns. I mean, it was Julianne Moore, uh, Marissa Tomei had just left, Jul uh, uh, Meg Ryan had just left. You know, Parker Posey, uh, Billy Fickner. We had great people on the show. Yeah. You know, really great people that were that remained on the show till the end as well. A lot of theater. You know, that was the thing about being on daytime in New York. You could do theater as well. Right. So before I step off of As the World Turns, I've got a question from a friend of mine named Chris who knows you uh, both from As the World Turns and from your time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Uh, yeah. He was very excited when he heard that I was talking to you. Hi, Chris. Oh, I'll tell him you said that. Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> uh, Chris was curious, and I'm curious too, what it's like stepping into a role on both of those shows that was previously played by multiple actors. Like, what effect did that have on the choices that you made with those characters? None. Um, and I'll tell you why. First of all, World Turns, Emily was played um, by, Marie Masters played my mother, and her daughter played Emily as a little girl. Um, and her kids are amazing kids. They were like sister and brother to me. They were twins. And then there was somebody who took on the role when she was younger for a very short period of time. So that had no, and by the way, like when you take over a role on daytime, anything goes anyway. Cause when I left, I was recast by someone who was nothing like me and played the character, nothing like I played her. Hmm. But when I, when I stepped into the role of Torah, Zial, I 
really never even looked at the work. I just knew who I translated that character into. For me, understanding the soul of a character is far more interesting than trying to duplicate, right? Because once you step into a role, writers start to write for you. Mm -hmm. uh, they start to see your nuances. So I really played her, I think, quite differently than the other girls on, on Deep Space. And, and one of the girls I think played, had like a couple of episodes and then the next girl maybe had a few. And then I, I think I, I was the longest running Torah, but it's a, it's a, it's a great show and the characters are great. The makeup is very, very difficult. Right. Yeah. I've heard you say that. And I've heard other actors uh, say that as well. And it's also interesting to me that your time on Star Trek and your time on World Turns, both of those shows have very strong, passionate fan bases. Uh, and oh, I'm sure you've had multiple interactions with those fans, right? Yes, but you have to remember also, um, you know, Star Trek, World Turns, Seinfeld, talk about a fan base. And then Aaron Spelling shows. I did, so, I did a number of Aaron Spelling shows. And right. you have very loyal followings for all of those. I mean, I think that they're distinct from one another but they are as devoted, you know? And when, you know, like when I left Star Trek, I, I begged them to kill me because that makeup was so hard on me. Um, <laughs> it, it was interesting to see the kind of emotion that came from Torah dying because she wasn't innocent in a lot of ways. You know, she was the ambassador of peace. So, you know, each of those genres, and they are their own genre. I mean, daytime is its own. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't believe there's generations now that don't really get daytime the way we got it. But they all have, you know, think about that. It's daytime, it's sci-fi, it's pure comedy, like comedy in its yeah. purest, right? And then it's, you know, that drama high glam, which was Aaron's forte, you know? So mm -hmm. it was four separate genres with very, very committed fan base. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know just speaking personally as a kid, I don't have very distinct memories of watching uh, soaps and daytime television, but I know it was always on. Like even, I mean, my grandfather uh, would be watching Melrose Place while he's, you know, running a business. And, uh, you know, in the, in the days before streaming, whatever the parents watched, the kids watched. So Absolutely. I know that those shows were always on during the daytime, especially in the summer when I'm not in school. And uh, I mean, people my age, I can't speak for the next generation, but, you know, they know all those shows and they're familiar with the characters, even if they didn't actively watch them as children. Yeah. And a lot of them are streamed now, right? That's right. So it's, it's, but they don't know the feeling. Do you know what I mm -hmm. mean? Like, like we had to be home. Like you were like, if the bus was late getting home, you were freaking out because you had to see what happened to so-and-so, you know? And one of the things that I found that was very distinct in daytime, it's very different than when you're doing primetime, is people think they actually know you. They don't think they just know you from TV. Like I would be in drugstores and people would like take my arm oh. as if they knew me because I was in their living room every day. Right. Right. Um, I remember someone came up to me on the street and she's like, you work in my nail salon. I was like, no, <laughs> I don't work in your nail salon. And then she was like, oh, my God, that's right. You're Emily. They wow. they, they believe there's a there's yeah. a connection because they mm -hmm. see you every day and it's not on film. It's on video. So it seems very real. Right. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I that genre yeah. stands out. Even the reality shows today that fundamentally take daytime's place are not every day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I think the psych term for that, and I'm not a, a psychology guy, so I don't know, but I think like the parasocial relationship is kind of what uh -huh. people have with these people that um, 
and it happens a lot in in the fandoms that I'm involved with, not just with Seinfeld, but also you know the David Lynch films and TV shows. People get really attached uh, to these characters and really emotionally invested. Um, so okay, I'm excited to hear that. Um, I would love to jump to 1994. Um, it was 1994, correct? Being cast on Seinfeld. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> well, we'll just say 1994, and if I'm wrong, I'll edit it in post. Um, <laughs> um, you come on to Seinfeld, I believe your first episode was The Raincoats, and I think I've heard you say that you hadn't really watched the show prior to being cast on it. Is that right? No, I don't. Genuinely, I don't remember if I ever watched the show. And I do remember when my agents called me and said, you know, they've been looking for this character of Rachel for a very long time. It's for an hour special. and I was at Paramount that day, and I know I had to go over to MTM, which was on the other side of the hill, which is a nightmare. Anybody on the West Coast knows what I'm talking about, but it's kind of akin to those of us on the East Coast. If someone said, do you mind sitting at the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel knowing mm -hmm. there's a car wreck in it, right? <laughs> and you're like, no. Um, but it was, you know, it was rush hour when they wanted me to go over the hill, and I said to my agents, that's not going to happen. Like, I'm, I'm just not doing that to myself. I'll get there. I'll be a horrible human being. So they had shifted the time of the meeting. I think that, you know, they may have stayed a little later and I got there pretty easily. And I went in and I, I read with Jerry, you know, Larry, everybody was in the room. And when I was leaving, Jerry ran out after me and he said, Hey, I noticed the name of your corporation, which was all about grapefruits. Right. Uh, and I, he said, why, why would you name your corporation that? It's a great name. And I said, well, Oscar Wilde once said a grapefruit was nothing but a lemon that had a chance and took it. And he laughed really hard, which was fun to make Jerry laugh. And then the next I left and I found out I got the role. So I have no idea if that had anything to do with it uh -huh. or, you know, if I just had the look that he, you know, I have no idea or that I was, you know, funny, but yeah. You know, certainly not as funny as that crew. But you held your own in those episodes, for sure. I think we can all say that. Um, what was it like working on the show for those three? I mean, the first one being a two-parter is unusual for a sitcom, um, so I'm sure busier than usual. But uh, I've heard a lot about the production on Seinfeld and, you know, the pacing and everything. What was it like for you? It was interesting. Again, because I had no real information, the only thing someone had told me was, you know, they're a very tight knit group of people. You'll probably just go in and out. You probably won't develop relationships or whatever. And my first day, remember it was an hour long. So they had, they had to pre-film some stuff. So there were sets behind sets. And, um, it was such a rush when I, when I got the job and I, walked on set, they were still working on my wardrobe for rehearsal. And everybody just started telling me like what to do, where to go. And I pretty much went, okay, everybody stop. And everybody just froze. And I said, nobody's introduced themselves to me. I don't know who the director is. I don't know who the producer is. I don't know who the cameraman, like, I don't know what, who I should be listening to. And it was really sweet. Everybody just stopped and they all came up and they introduced themselves to me. And we rehearsed the scene and then I went into hair and makeup and, and to meet the hair and makeup people. And Jerry came in and said, who are you and who does that? <laughs> <laughs> and from that point on, Jerry and I actually became friends and we, you know, started eating lunch together or we just talk about stuff. And, you know, we talk a lot about yoga and meditation and those kinds of things. And, 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 um, you know, Michael was into yoga as well. So it was kind of a, 
you know, and then and then when Jerry called me, Jerry called me after that first special and he said, if we write for you, will you stay? Hmm. Which had never been done before, I was told. So, yeah, I said, you know, let me check my calendar. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You were um, if I'm remembering this correctly, you were the I think the only guest actor that played a girlfriend on Seinfeld that was on for more than two episodes. There was, I think, one in season one and then one in season eight uh, that was in the season seven finale. This was Janine Garofalo that came back for one scene in the second uh, in the ninth, in the eighth season. Um, but yeah, I think you were the longest running guest uh, girlfriend on the show, which is a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool honor to have. And uh, obviously you, you made an impression on the cast and crew. There's a story that I've heard you tell before that I know not everyone has heard. And if it's okay, I would love to talk about the episode, the Hamptons and the really iconic line that you brought about, uh, which is when Rachel walks in and sees George naked and apologizes and laughs and says, I'm so sorry. And then leaves. Yeah. Um, it is my understanding, Melanie, that that it, what we see on screen is not exactly the way it was originally written and that you had a hand in kind of evolving that. Can you tell me a little about that? Well, the script was written. I walk into the room and I say, oh my God, I thought, I'm so sorry. I thought this was the baby's room. And in dress, I went in and I said, oh my God, I'm sorry. I thought this was the baby's room. And then I look at George's crotch and I go, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And I laugh. And they yell cut and Larry and Larry and I think it, I'm not sure if it was Peter Melman or uh, Larry Charles. I'm not I'm not sure. But I think Melman wrote that one. Was it? Yeah, it, I love Peter by the way. Um, yeah. And um, but I'm not sure who was on the floor at that moment. I know mm. he wrote, but I'm not sure he was on the floor at that moment. And Larry or two of them or three of them said to me, "Oh my God, that was hysterical! Can you keep that in?" Can you do that again? And I was like, of course I can do it again. Because to me, it's really what the scene is about. And I, I can't say that I changed the intention of the scene. I didn't. But I did add a moment that I think kind of charged it up a little bit and made it a little juicier. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was funny. It was really... <laughs> and Jason is so much fun to work with. I can imagine. Uh, it's And it's really cool because growing up, I didn't start watching Seinfeld until I was maybe eight years old uh, around the time season eight was coming out. <laughs> but what, watching the promos and once the show went into syndication on TBS, that scene, that exchange between you and George is one of the most frequently used for commercials from what I can remember. So like, I, I mean, just the shot of you, the shot of him, back to you, you laugh, I was in the pool. It's so ingrained in my head, and it, it's it's really exciting to me to know that it, it wouldn't have been quite the impact uh, and the highlight of the episode that it was without that uh, that creative detail from you. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, and I think yeah, I remember one night I was sitting in my phone. I don't know anything about Twitter. I've I've never posted a tweet because I was called a tweet. Yeah, and I was sitting in my office one day, and and um, my phone started like vibrating and vibrating and vibrating. And I kept looking going like, what's going on? And I called my son and I said, what's happening? And he goes, um, mom, you're blowing up on Twitter. I don't even know what that means. And somebody had taken uh, somehow, a, you know, the me looking at George uh -huh. and Photoshopped it into me looking at LeBron James 
And I guess he had exposed himself accidentally on court and over his yeah. head that I was in the pool, I was in the pool. And and so that just like retweeted and I, it was really funny. I actually just, somebody just sent that to me and I reposted it on my Facebook page. So anyway, that's what it bleeds into. Like it becomes this, this nomenclature of some sort, you know, it's like people which was every episode of Seinfeld, by the way. Yeah. Like we have this whole language from Seinfeld that that exists nowhere else and started with the show. Yeah. So, you know, shrinkage, I'm called shrinkage all the time. <laughs> <laughs> For better or I love it. <laughs> right, right. And you don't even say shrinkage in the show. Like that's just, it's just, that's the association. <laughs> exactly. I love it. Okay. Speaking of Seinfeld, um, from someone who was there and who interacted with the creative forces behind it, what felt different about that show from working on other shows? Because it stands out, I mean, really as one of the top sitcoms of all time and really as iconic in television. And I, it's always so hard to pinpoint what is the secret sauce behind that show? What felt different to you working on it? I think, you know, you can try to parse this out a million different ways. And you can try to diagnose it, but I think the simple fact that it was lightning in a bottle, you had some of the most brilliant writers, you had some of the most brilliant talent, you had two of the most brilliant comedians, um, you had full support of a network, you had uh, a time that coincided perfectly and a population that was enormous, right? So Seinfeld really caught on with a, po a large population of the boomers, like we're a huge population. When you take that combination and you make something as unique as Seinfeld, because it, even though it was, it had a similar cadence to how comedy is done, the way they wrote the show and the way storylines intersected, it wasn't a, this happened, that happened, but I'm bumped. This happened, that happened, but I'm bumped. It was like something happened. And then by the end of the show, you're like, that was brilliant, right? And the way they would weave things together, but again, that can't just happen. That is a perfect storm of talent, of opportunity, of you know, an opening in society willing to accept it. And by the way, at that point, our culture was so much about getting done with your work and hanging out and having a cappuccino at you know Starbucks or coffee bean and tea leaf or wherever it was. And so that population that was a little bit self-centered anyway, and then you had a, a cast that was entirely self-centered. I mean, not one person on that show did anything to help anyone. Right. <laughs> so the humor in the humanness and the universality of that humanness was a great component, but what really did it was the amalgam of great talent and timing. Yeah. It's never been, yeah, I'm not saying that other shows don't have great talent, but it was precisely the kind of talent. Exactly. I don't think I could disagree with a single thing that you just said. Um, yeah. yeah, I think you pretty much nailed it. Fans know that you had a guest role on Curb Your Enthusiasm, but what I learned listening to one of your last interviews is that you were also one of, I think, just 10 people that was in a, a pre-screening of the pilot yes. that Larry shot for Curb. So the first question, I'm just curious, how did you become one of just 10 people that was in that focus group that would go on to choose the name of the show? 
Well, first of all, I knew Larry and I had been, you know, Larry pulled me in also for Sour Grapes. Right. And, you know, we worked well together. And then Bob Whitey, who was director of Curb, is a very close friend of mine uh, and has been for years. And uh, that's kind of when Bob and Larry were working on it, they really, and I would, I would actually be in focus groups for Bob on his docs. He was a ah. documentarian. He did the one on um, Lenny Bruce. He did the Marx Brothers. He did Woody Allen's. And so he used to pull me into his focus groups for his docs. And he, he said, come to this. We're going to be taking a look at it, have a focus group, take comments, and we're going to be naming it. So we actually got a list of the names that they were considering. And it was like, Kirby enthusiasm was hands down the winner. Yeah. And the pilot was brilliant. I actually saw the pilot before it was edited for television. So oh. I, I thought the pre-screen was like so much, it was, it was politically incorrect in some ways, but it was yeah. really funny. You know, you know, Larry, uh, oh, yeah. it was really funny. It was brilliant. That is so cool. And of course, I mean, and acting on it, and this shines through in the show, it's such a different show production-wise because they produce it without a script. So there's a, a lot of uh, improvising that goes on. Um, do you have any background in improv, like training throughout your career that prepared you for that? Or was that kind of a new thing for you? I had studied improv briefly and I liked it quite a bit. Like I had a lot of fun. I screwed up a lot, but I was willing to do it. And that's, I think, the foundation of improv. Are you willing to do it? because it exposes you in an entirely different way than acting does. You know, when somebody's writing a character, you have a lot of time to work on the inner essence of the character and then, you know, you say the lines. But when you're doing improv, typically the people you do improv with are very fast, very clever, very funny. And you can get stuck in moments where you're actually taken off guard because it is so funny right? Or because it is so clever or because you're lo you've lost your way. I mean, that's really possible in improv too. Mm -hmm. So being willing to do improv is the first step to doing improv. But being on the show uh, was so, so fun. And, and literally all they do is they tell you a general outline of what they need for, you know, obvious reasons. And then they tell you things you need to hit, right? Like I had to get Larry to have lunch with me. Uh -huh. Right. So you're giving an objective and then you're on your own, literally. And with Larry, right, with Larry, that's like being on a bucking bronco because he goes to the weirdest places. Uh -huh. I mean, come on, to have a response when somebody's talking to you about incest to say, well, it was a step. Does that count? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? right. How does that even come out of your brain? It was so that was a very different experience um, and a very special one. And I'm working with Lorraine Newman. You know, like it was just incredible. Yeah. So Melanie, I'd like to take a, a minute and talk about uh, the career change that you made uh, after Star Trek Deep Space Nine. You took a turn and moved away from television into something completely different and something completely exciting that I think is going to be really interesting to a lot of uh, the folks listening to this podcast. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that, about what happened and where you went from there? Sure. Well, after I left Deep Space, I actually went on and did another series with my, my best girlfriend, Nancy McKeon, called The Division. And, you know, I had also done, by the way, another show that Peter wrote. It's like, you know, and right. I was pregnant at the time. Uh, they called me. They're like, what's wardrobe's like, what size are you? And I wasn't telling anybody I was pregnant. And I'm like, uh, 
day <laughs> by the time we film i'm not sure uh -huh. um so i had my son uh and i started realizing during the filming of the division it was very hard for me to be away from my son you know you get nannies and that are fabulous we had the best nanny but it's very hard to tell your child you're home for dinner and then call every night and say, I'm not going to make it, you know, and these are very strong developmental years. So I started to realize I wasn't being a good mother and I wasn't being a good actress either. Cause when I was on set, I was constantly in my head and in my heart with my son. So I made the decision, you know, the other thing I'll add here is I, I, I had lost a lot of people in my life at that point. You know, I, I, lost family members and friends. And my, my mother had passed away just at the end of As the World Turns. And then my sister was um, tragically killed in a car accident right around the time when I, when I was doing Murder, She Wrote. And I realized, you know, so much of why we're here in life is for human connection and for love and compassion. And I knew deep down, I, I couldn't live with not raising my son. You know, people say, was it a hard choice? And I said, it's a very interesting question because in a lot of ways it wasn't a choice. It, it was a purpose. You know, I think who we are needs to win over what we do. Mm -hmm. And who I was and am, uh, I became a mother first. So I was called uh, to do another series and it was a great role and the offer was on the table and I passed. So, you know, my son teases me now. He's like, why didn't you take it? Uh, and I'm like, because I needed to raise you into the fantastic human being you are. Mm -hmm. So that was really the impetus was I had lost my center in both places and I decided I needed to get my center back. So when I moved out of Los Angeles, I knew I couldn't do it in Los Angeles. I mean, you know, people were consistently calling me. They wanted to send scripts and and why was I in LA if I wasn't going to be acting? And by the way, the traffic and the smog and so on and so forth, you know, I'm basically an East coaster. So, uh -huh. um, I made my move to the, to the East coast. And at that time, you know, even in LA, when I was filming, I was a serious yogi and I was a serious meditator and I studied many different modalities, uh, on working in inward, you know, not looking at the, um, the outer contributions to your life, but really looking at who you are as a human being. And that became tremendously important to me. You know, it wasn't a hobby. It was really at the core of who I was. So when I moved back East, I decided to open a wellness center and three nights before our opening, I was supposed to, I had a lot of high profile friends coming to celebrate and to help me promote it. And horribly, a police officer was killed that week. And so all of my press, I lost right? Because that became the critical newsfeed. And I was sitting on the couch in the studio, in the wellness center, thinking, what am I doing? I don't know anybody here and I'm going to open a center and nobody knows I'm here and I've lost all my press and oh my God. And the next thing I know, my phone rings and it was Oprah's producers. Hmm. And they wanted to know, because it's Oprah's favorite television moment, if they could use my clip from Seinfeld. Aha. Uh -huh. And I said, only if she tells people what I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> and, and the next thing I knew, now, of course, I was kidding, mm -hmm. but then the networks, the major networks did a 
10 minute piece on the opening of my studio and we opened to standing room only and we became through hard work and an incredible staff and a lot of devotion to the practices that we taught and the education that we gave, we became one of the top three in the country. Wow. And I owned and ran that for nearly 10 years. Huh. And that was during that time also, um, I had been studying to, to coach and my original specialty was in grief, loss, change and transition. And I loved that work, but what eventually it, it pivoted into was high level achievers, executives, and anybody trying, even, even creatives and talent started coming to me around how do we resolve the things that hold us back and block us so that we can create the things that we dream about. And oftentimes when you look at people in their lives, they're very stuck in who they were either told to be or thought they wanted to be. And they get caught in these positions. Sometimes they're golden handcuffs, right? Sometimes the trappings are quite coveted and helping people transition into their best life, into their whole life, into the greatest identity that they really are. Like I said, you know, who we are matters and what our container is. It's critical to understand to have your happiest life. People come to me a lot and say, I have everything. Why aren't I happy? Hmm. And that's the work I do through a proprietary process that I've created, but also just through my expertise in business. And, uh, you know, I went back to school for entrepreneurship and um, business and, and fundamentals of the music industry at NYU. And so there was a lot of studying that went into my transition. But this kind of work is rooted more deeply to my purpose. Gotcha. Okay. So, Melanie, I'm curious, where did this begin for you? Because an interest in yoga, meditation, mindfulness, doing the inner work, that kind of stuff, it, it doesn't happen passively. Like I've been getting interested in and educating myself on uh, some of these concepts over the past year, and you really have to actively seek it out. Was it something that you had always had an interest in since childhood? Was there a certain time in your life where I, you know, I'm just going to take up yoga and, and study it? Or, or where did it come from? Well, I would say that psychology and self-development was part of my personality. I mean, I've sort of always that go-to person all through life, right? I was always an advisor or a guide or a coach on some level. But I will tell you exactly the moment my yoga journey started. Um, there was a friend of mine years ago, I haven't spoken to her in many years. I was very close to her husband and herself, uh, an actress named Lizette Anthony, she's British. And they were studying with a man named Bifu Chaudhry, who has now, of course, changed his reputation dramatically. But at that time, he was reputed in a lot of very high profile. People would go and study with him and he was a character. He wasn't yet overblown. Mm -hmm. um, and she called me and she said, darling, we're all going to do this yoga and it's in a room that's 110 degrees. You must join. And I was like, nah, I'm kind of good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really need to do that. I, I can sweat enough in the summer here. We're good. And she was like, oh, but darling, we're all going and we're going for margaritas after. And I went, okay. <laughs> and so I, and that's literally what happened. And I went and I fell in love with the practice. Now I had done some yoga when I was in New York, but it was much more a yin sort of relaxed, deep breathing kind of yoga and being, I was a real athlete. So, and dancer. So being that deeply, uh, kind of comfortable and using my body through strength, there was, didn't resonate with me the same way. When I started studying Bikram, I went every day. After that first day, I went every day and I said with Bikram for two and a half years. 
And I switched because of Jerry. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah, we were in the green room and he goes, I, you do Bikram, I did Bikram. And I was like, yeah, let's go do yoga. He's like, you can't do that anymore. You have to like grow your practice. And I said, okay, you know, what do I kind of, what do I do next? And we would practice some of Bikram's postures in the green room and then like learn some new things. And that's when I actually expanded my practice. And I started studying with Matthias Rati, who was an incredible master of, you know, she was a, I think she was a fourth series Ashtangi, but I don't, I'm sure the listeners don't know what that means, but it's really hard. Uh. And, <laughs> and we, none of us can do what she did. That's all that means. Um, so I really progressed in my practice and I was approached by many of my teachers to become a teacher. And I took teachers trainings without intending to be a teacher while I was filming shows. And I was also a songwriter and jingle writer at the time. Hmm. So um, there were a lot of hats I wore in my life, uh, but that is how the yoga started. And that's really what got me into meditation as well. You know, it's kind of a, it's a gate, yoga is a gateway drug. Sure. <laughs> wow. Okay. And one other thing you had uh, in common with Jerry that a lot of my followers and listeners who are fans of David Lynch will appreciate is that you have also studied transcendental meditation, TM. Is that right? I'm a TMer and my son's a TMer. Mm-hmm. Uh, years ago, I dated a, a man who ran the Maharishi School. Uh, he was the principal, and I discovered TM at that point. And then, of course, you know, it's a very different technology than than most meditations. It's very precise, um, and there's a lineage to it. And so I studied it, and then I my son started meditating when he was ten. And it impacted his life a great deal. I think meditation changes your life. I think everyone really should do it. All you beautiful people listening, find some way. If you can't learn meditation, at least take 10 minutes twice a day to get to know yourself and to let go of what it is that ills you on this planet so that you can just sort of chill, you know, and mm-hmm. find some real peace. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. It's uh, I've been spending the past couple of years dipping my toe in it. And uh, it's it is very unnatural since you know in this world we've been trained to just kind of be productive twenty four hours a day to stop and not do anything except you know find the stillness and the mindfulness and be in the present and uh, that's it's really difficult but it is yeah extremely beneficial I would agree with you there yeah I think most people think life is what we get to but life is what happens when you're busy doing something else I think that's a quote from someone that's not me but. You know, you can turn around at some point and say, where did it all go? So I think every day it's critical to not only be grateful, you've all heard that a million times and hashtagged, right? Grateful, blessed. But the truth of the matter is, if you don't really awaken to your life as it happens today, you will miss it. And there's a lot to miss. Oh, yeah. And meditation highlights the beauty of life. That's lovely. Yeah, I uh, 100% agree with you. I think it, it was the theologian Ferris Bueller who once said, life comes at you fast. And if you don't slow down and take a look, you'll miss it. Yeah. So Melody, what's going on with you today? I, I've heard you say recently that you're working on a new website and you're also writing a book. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the new website hopefully will be launched in the next four weeks. Uh, I'm a, kind of a perfectionist with that kind of stuff. So it takes me a little longer than most. And my book is in its final edits now. Um, The book is really 
wrapped around my proprietary work, but it does talk about my journey as well. And it, it's not autobiographical. Um, it is really a book to help others. Uh, in my practice, you know, I, I've helped many people and I feel very, very blessed to be able to say that. It's an honor. It's what I love more than anything. I love really connecting and helping people live their highest. It's, it's an incredible feeling to be able to do this for a living. But I'm only available so many hours a day. So many people had asked, will you ever write a book about this? And I had written a workbook and I had been um, doing webinars with people to get more people into you know, my schedule. And then eventually it evolved into the material that will be out in this book. And I believe it will really help people look at themselves a very different way, decode the patterns that keep them from everything that they've ever dreamed of, to get to know themselves truly. You know, we think we know ourselves, but it's incredible how much invisible data from the past stops us and we don't even identify it. Um, and then through this work, it helps you design what you want, who you want, where you want to go. And it, it really is a beautiful process. It's changed hundreds of people's lives and now it will be in book form. And I'm excited to see it. Uh, when it when it comes out, when you've got the information on the release date and everything, please share it with me because I'd love to share it with uh, the folks listening and the, and the folks following along online. Absolutely. And you'll see on the website, my one-on-one -on -one work with people um, is also really at the heart of what I wake up every day to do. I jump out of my bed to do it. Great. I've got one final question for you, Melanie. This is very sure. open-ended. Um, throughout your career uh, or multiple careers and you know the life that you're living now, the life that you lived working as a television actor, what is maybe the biggest lesson that you've learned? Or if not that, where is a good place for people to start if they're interested in studying, whether it's yoga or TM or, you know, some sort of meditation and inner work kind of uh, discipline, where do you start? Is there a certain teacher that they should be reading? Um, maybe just a certain practice to, to think about, something to work into their routine every day? Where, what's a good starting place? You know, being curious is the starting place and asking better questions is the starting place. If something doesn't feel right in you, in your life, in your family, Start asking better questions, start getting curious. Is there one teacher? No. I think you find your teacher if you're open to receiving your teacher. So I know oftentimes, you know, I'll be in the presence of someone and there's a connection where I become their teacher or they become my teacher, right? But also I spent many, many days, many, many hours in bookstores, uh, which is a dying breed. Oh, yeah. But they're still there. So is a public library. And asking, what do I need? What and where is my next step? It, you'd be surprised at how energetically the universe works that way. If you truly want to change your life, you can bring those possibilities right to your doorstep. They're not far, especially now with the internet. I mean, mm -hmm. you can move through tremendous amounts of information on the internet and and even just Google. My son calls me the craziest Googler because because I Google like I'm talking to my computer, right? So I mean, <laughs> you could actually Google, I want to change my life, mm -hmm. you know, or I want to go deeper in knowing myself, or I have too much stress, 
or, you know, I'm a master of the pivot. So I want to pivot and change my career. I've pivoted and had knock wood. I feel very blessed and had tremendous success in all of my pivots. And I do teach pivoting, right. Mm -hmm. And transition. So, you know, if whatever issue it is, even if it's just a discomfort or a misalignment, step out your door and look, it's there. There is somebody across the street or five blocks away or on the corner or a phone call away or a Google away. It is easier now to change your life, to have the things you want, to create what never used to be possible than ever before. You know, in the wild west, that's when the fields were open so that you could create and become and manifest. We are now in a new form of the wild west. You can do anything. You can be anyone. You can heal from everything. Uh, and you can manifest exactly what you want. And I'll tell you something. Jerry said something to me once, and it's one of my favorite things anyone has ever said to me. We were sitting in one of his Porsches. <laughs> <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, you know, Jerry, what I find most fascinating, and by the way, you can have this in any field. You are literally the pinnacle. What's the best part of that? Is it the fame? Is it the money? Is it the stuff? And he looked at me straight in the eye without hesitation. And he said, no, it's finding out that you are exactly who you always thought you were. And that's what I help people do. Find out that they are exactly who they thought they were without letting this world or anyone else's ideas get in the way of their trajectory. That's my purpose. That's what I do. And that is the question you can start with is who am I really? Who was I always meant to be? And how do I get there? That is the coolest answer that I could have asked for uh, from that question. <laughs> uh, wow. Okay. That's fantastic. So for uh, folks who have listened to this interview and are energized now to get started asking those questions, mm -hmm. where can they follow along with you? Like, what is your website now? I know you're working on a new one. Uh, where can people go currently to, to find out what you're doing? Well, you can go to the URL work with Melanie Smith and you will go, you'll be transported to my old website, which will soon be my new website, but it's, it's work with Melanie Smith. It used to be called well-lit life. Mm -hmm. And when it was well at life, I was primarily doing uh, more change and recovery and uh, transition work. Now my work is has shifted quite a bit into not just the transitions, but really empowering and building lives and and having uh, people with goals master a great life. So yeah, workwithmelaniesmith.com. Fabulous. And I highly encourage folks to go check it out. Um, Melanie, this has been an amazing conversation. Um, there has been so much that has resonated with me. As a, a father of a three-year-old, I hugely respect and relate to your decision to put who you are uh, in relation to your family ahead of what you were doing at the time, which was just killing it in a television career and doing some amazing things and, and creating some iconic, forever memorable moments on some of our favorite shows. And so we're grateful for that. We're grateful for, I mean, where you are now. And uh, I'm really excited to see what's coming for you next. Uh, Jesse, thank you so much. Of course. Before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to, to leave with the folks listening? You got a lot of Seinfeld fans here. Uh, I know that at least my friend Chris and his friends that uh, you got some fans of As the World Turns and Star Trek listening as well. Uh, anything you'd like to tell the folks listening? Yeah, I think we don't take enough time to thank them for making our lives better. You know, everywhere I go, 
when I meet the people who love our work, mine and, and all other talent, you make our life better. I'm grateful that we make your life better too, because we make you laugh or cry or think or feel, but you really do make our, our lives better. And we wouldn't be honored with our, the ability to, to work our craft on any level without you guys. So thank you. And you've always been wonderful to me. And I, I can't express my gratitude enough for that. And thank you, Jesse, for what you do, particularly in a time like we're in today, where people want to be uplifted and they want to feel connected and they want to feel that they have a community around them that is like-minded and creating a sense of belonging. So thank you for what you do and congratulations on creating a strong following. You must be really great at it. I can't wait to hear some of the other shows, you know? That uh, I'm blushing a little bit over here. Um, so I'm going to wrap up pretty quickly. But, he is. Uh, I meant... actually see him, you guys. <laughs> Uh, but that that means a whole hell of a lot uh, for you to say that, Melanie. So thank you very much. And uh, this has been a pleasure. We can't wait to see what's coming from you next. And uh, we will stay in touch. Once again, Melanie Smith, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks again to Melanie for coming on the show. You can find her online at workwithmelaniesmith.com and on Instagram at melaniesmithofficial. This week's musical guest is Oriamix, a psychedelic radiophonic music concrete group based in New York and LA. Oriamix was founded by Christy Scrivellas and Glenn Lee Flynn in 2014 in Brooklyn. Their song Founders of Time was inspired by the BBC Radiophonic Workshop and early electronic music pioneers Delia Derbyshire and Daphne Oram. You can find the song's music video, directed by Christy, on YouTube. Here with tonight's featured track, Founders of Time, is Oriamix.
Thanks for listening. Subscribe to The Other Side of Darkness so you won't miss the story once it begins this fall. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a positive rating and review on your podcasting app. Follow Sign Peaks on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, or join our Facebook group. Visit our store at signpeaks.threadless.com. 50% of proceeds for the month of June will be donated to New Alternatives, a New York-based organization serving unhoused LGBTQ youth. And if you'd like to support this series, you can visit patreon.com signpeaks to get early access to episodes and exclusive merchandise. Intro theme by Patrick Edwards. Mid-show theme by Ivor Bowens. Outro theme by Robert McDonald. Additional music by Cody McCory. All links mentioned can be found in this episode's show notes. Thanks for listening. The Other Side of Darkness was made possible thanks to the backing of over 100 supporters through sites like kickstarter.com. Here are just a few of the supporters I'd like to recognize. Greg Diener. Katie Scuderi. David Montgomery. Carol Walker. Ashley Day Caligny, Ivor Bowitz, and Pam Myers. The Other Side of Darkness is written, performed, and produced strictly as a work of parody. The Other Side of Darkness is not endorsed by Castle Rock Entertainment, Sony Pictures, NBC, Warner Brothers Records, Rhino Records, Lynch Frost Productions, Twin Peaks Productions, CBS, or Showtime. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Seinfeld, the Seinfeld logo, and all Seinfeld characters, story elements, and intellectual property are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and or copyright holders. The makers of The Other Side of Darkness make no claims directly or indirectly of ownership to any elements held by these trademark and or copyright holders other than original characters, story elements, and other intellectual properties created specifically by the makers of this podcast. Musical elements referencing themes and motifs from the original theme music to Seinfeld and Twin Peaks are created expressly as works of parody and do not imply claims to ownership of said music. 